Hi, I'm Clement Liu. Welcome to Season 4 of Just Sustainability. In the last episode, I introduced you to an old friend of mine, Jill Fellows, who's a public philosopher who spends her time thinking, writing, and podcasting about the relationships between gender, technology, and equity. Jill also told us about how she approaches public philosophy in her podcast. In this episode, we pick up where we left off, with Jill telling me about how she approaches identifying the guests for her shows, and how talking to young folks makes it obvious that there have been a ton of progress, and how people think about issues related to equity and sustainability. So, in some ways, the first season was pretty straightforward, because the podcast accompanies a book that we wrote, um, that I co-edited with one of my colleagues, Dr. Lisa Smith. And so... I invited everybody that contributed to the book. <laughs> um, but then I also invited some people who had early on wanted to be part of the book and then for various uh-huh. professional and personal reasons had to pull out. You know how you get kind of overextended and you have to let a project go. Um, so I asked, you know, okay, you weren't able to contribute a chapter to the book, but do you still want to be in the podcast? And they said yes, which was amazing. Um, so now... Uh-huh. In part, I'm still just kind of following stuff I'm interested in. Okay. Um, so, you know, I'm still doing my research on philosophy of technology, and I contact people that I'm interested in their work, and I'm interested to know more. Oh. I'm also still trying to make sure that the podcast is representative of a lot of different disciplines, of scholars at different stages of their careers that come from different backgrounds, because there's a lot of stuff that I probably don't know or that I'm thinking about in a certain way, given Mm -hmm. my own background and given my own discipline and my own situation. So I try to do that. So we've had undergraduate students Uh as well as um, late stage professors, like tenured professors on the podcast, because I'm trying to represent kind of all of that, and also people from diverse backgrounds. Um, Yeah, (laughs) I felt like there was a third thing, and now I can't remember what it was. (laughs) (laughs) Well, something you said just made me think of a blind spot in my own sort of podcast, right, the Just Sustainability podcast. So I've been pretty, right, so I've been pretty mindful to have folks from all sorts of backgrounds uh, and, like, uh, who approach these problems from a broad range of areas, right, not necessarily just academic ones, right? Mm-hmm. So I've had a fair number of people who uh, have been on podcasts who think about like equity and sustainability outside of the academy. I have not had very many students and like young folks. I can't think of actually having any. That's an right. So like most, not not everybody that's been on the podcast has been like senior per se, but mm-hmm. most are well established in like what they're doing. Yeah. Uh it would be interesting to to talk to, right? Because I often find the most exciting ideas come from folks who are newer to yeah. kind of areas of work because they they haven't had they they haven't been indoctrinated <laughs> by this sort of conventional wisdom. Yes, um, and the episodes where I've interviewed students have also been often really favorably be- received, both by my other students who are like, "That's mm-hmm. amazing that students did that," mm-hmm. um, but also from the public. Maybe because it's less jargon heavy. Um, uh-huh. And also, at least because I am looking at technologies and interviewing people who are kind of growing up in the thick of it, um, uh-huh. I think is, is really important and interesting to get that perspective. You know, I never online dated. 
online dating was just barely a thing when I started dating. Um, so talking to people who are growing up with technologies that may seem relatively new to me, but have always right. kind of been there for them, I think is a really interesting disparity to think about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and then I think when you think about tech, right, like, uh, you really, well, I mean, not just, I mean, there's a lot of topics. I think actually younger folks are, are much further ahead than like some of us yeah. older folks, right? Like a tech is one of them. I think it, like equity and sustainability more broadly totally. uh, are, are yeah, like young folks. Uh, yeah. I realized this in my teaching, right? Like uh, a couple of years ago, I realized from talking to like, from just paying attention to my students that like a lot of what I thought was important background, they were just glazing over. And I'm like, why are you glazing over this? And I'm like, wait, you already know this. I'm telling you stuff you know. I, this right, is like, the boring I'm, stuff. You're already all on board. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, I, I don't need to start at like that, like that introductory level. I, I should just assume that you know this. I should check to make sure you your details are correct. But like overall, you kind of know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Let's focus on the real sort of like the the difficult questions, the unresolved things. Um, yeah, and that's very hopeful, right? Like that's nice. Yes. Yeah, yeah. No, it certainly is. Like. Uh, it, it is a sign that there is definitely progress, right? Yeah. The, um, I right there are things that when I started teaching, uh, I guess the first time I would have taught would have been like, when, when did we do our masters? When did when did we start it teaching? Was like two thousand and three, Clement. Twenty years ago. <laughs> right? I remember back then, like right when I talked about these topics, I, there was a lot of background I have to give yes. folks, or like a lot of convincing of to folks, like that these are real things that you should be thinking about. Uh, I have not had to do that in the last five or t- five verse seven years. Yeah, I've noticed that change as well. Yeah. Um, that I don't have to. I don't have to push so hard to have people recognize that there are inequalities in the world um, and that, you know, capitalism may not be all that great all the time um, and that (laughs) climate change is a thing that is happening. Like there needs to be pushback about that. Right. And people will be like, no, no, that's, that's debatable. (laughs) Well, I mean, I I remember like when I was doing my PhD, the first summer that I taught, like I taught a class on like a, uh, contemporary issues on like social justice, right? It was like, it was part of the, like the, the, the university of Cincinnati had like this, uh, sequence of, of moral and political ideas classes that students had to take. And I had, I did the third one mm-hmm. for like, it was like, it was a gen ed thing. And I remember having to convince students that like, no, racism was actually an important thing that they should be concerned about. Right. Yeah. And I, I think now like people might disagree about like what counts as racism or like the pervasiveness like of racism. It, maybe. Yeah, but but I don't think anyone thinks like, oh, you know, racism's okay. Or that it's not happening at all. Yeah, or that it's not happening at all. I think most people recognize that to some degree it's happening. They might disagree to to the amount it's happening. But even like, you know, uh, I don't think anyone just says like, you know, racism is an acceptable thing. Yeah. Which I I think, right, uh, 20 years ago, people, there were folks still that would be like, no, no, this is right. Like, this is an acceptable thing for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so they're there, right? I think sometimes, it, uh, you know, there are kind of weird outbreaks of bad things happening and feels like progress isn't happening fast enough. But at least, right, there is, there has certainly been progress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Things are. I interview good. undergrads. It's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, it does right. Like uh it always feels to me like a little pandry or like a little trite. But I it really the one thing I do 
appreciate about teaching at a university level is that you get to interact with young folks and there is something hopeful in the, in like, right. Like what I see in young folks. I hope so. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. After chatting with Jill about how she approaches the task of identifying guests for a podcast and how talking with young folks reveals there's been, in fact, a great deal of progress in regards to cultural change towards the direction of equity. I asked her about how she approached overcoming the various challenges related to integrating public scholarship into an academic career. Here's that discussion. Uh, I guess there's one last thing I want to ask you about the public philosophy part in the podcast is just thinking about like, how do you approach integrating it to your sort of broader academic project, right? Given, I guess there's two questions there. Like one is just more of like a descriptive, like, right. How, in fact, do you, yeah. right. Like tie that into your broader research project? Cause I think you very actively do. And then the, the second part is like maybe a practical question about, uh, you know, the landscape of higher ed and then Mm-hmm. How, what gets counted as legitimate scholarship and work, yeah. which is, I think, something that people get pushback from often. Yeah. And I suspect there's similarities in your and mine's appointment that allow us to be a little bit more free to, to engage in public scholarship, which is, I think, why we both do it so much. But I think for there's a lot of folks where uh, it, it, the sacrifice that they have to make uh, yeah. to engage in some of this stuff. And so I'm just curious how like, right, you think about that. Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot. Um, I'll start with the first part, though, okay. uh, which is integrating public philosophy into my work. So, like I said, the the Gender, Sex, and Tech podcast uh-huh. came about as a companion to a text that I co-edited with Dr. Lisa Smith, and it's called Gender, Sex, and Tech, an Intersectional Feminist Guide. And it's a collection of essays. It was amazing to do. Uh-huh. Um, and when we got the contract to do the book, I asked the publishing company, uh, Canadian Scholars Women's Press, mm-hmm. if I could do a podcast that would accompany the book. And they were like, absolutely, go for it. So that was amazing. Yeah. That was um, cool. Yeah, they were very supportive. They saw the podcast could be, first of all, a good marketing strategy, but also kind of something <laughs> unique uh, when you're thinking. Of, so, you know, a lot of textbooks roll out with extras that go along with them, you know, things Mm -hmm. like test banks or um, websites or whatever, um, or Mm -hmm. PowerPoint slides that professors can use. And so this one rolled out and there's a podcast and then you can assign your students listening from the podcast if you want to. Uh Um, But the podcasts are independent from the book. So you don't have to buy the book to have access to the podcast. And a lot of my listeners don't even know that there is a book that goes along with the podcasts, um, which is totally fine. They stand alone on their own. Um, Yeah. But that was an integration that I did that's been really helpful. And I've kind of been moving forward in a in a similar vein. So I tend to make my public philosophy. So it, as I'm moving forward doing season two of the podcast, I also oh. did an episode of the radio program CBC Ideas. I did a radio documentary yeah. building on a, my work. And what I've been doing is just kind of having a lot of fun exploring taking my research and presenting it in different formats. Yeah. And I mean, we all know Marshall McLuhan, great Canadian scholar, the medium is the message. And it turns out it's very much true as I explore how to communicate my ideas in different formats. Yeah. I actually continue to learn stuff about, you know, I've been working on this stuff on um, specifically digital assistance and gender Uh since 2017. Uh But every time I presented in a new format, I learned something new as I translated into the new format. And so I Uh feel like 
it's a way to understand my work and explore my ideas more deeply than if I were just writing academic papers, which I still value and I still do. Mm. So that's kind of the answer to the first part of the question. Yes, it's a good answer. And Thank you. And the second part of the question, I mean, yes. <laughs> so institutions of higher education often say that they value public scholarship mm-hmm. and often there's not a lot of actual rec- meaningful action backing up that claim, shall yes. we say. I was fortunate um, because of the institution I work at. So Douglas College is not a research institution. Uh-huh. There's There are some provisions in place for us to take leave to do research. Um, but what Douglas College really values is research that can meaningfully inform what we're doing in the classroom. Uh-huh. And they also value um, open education. Uh-huh. So I applied to take an ed leave, which is like a sabbatical. Okay. And I said that I was going to do this podcast as an open educational resource, Uh and they were excited to go for it. So I got given ed leave in order to do this, Uh um, and I pitched it as an open educational resource. Uh So there are some strategies that you can do, I think, at teaching institutions to position your public scholarship as open education, because, I mean, that is part of what public scholarship is, is open education. Um, But Obviously, that is because of the institution I'm at, because it's a teaching institution. And yeah, research institutions often tend to view public scholarship as service work, and they don't really count it as research. So if you're going up for tenure or something like that, it often doesn't count. You know, what they want to see is your monograph and all of your papers in high-profile journals. Uh So the good news for me is there's no tenure at Douglas College. There's no research required. I wasn't going to lose a chance at tenure by doing this work. Right. The thing that I think I have in common, though, with my colleagues at research institutions is that for it's a lot of work to do public scholarship. Like editing podcasts takes time. Editing the radio documentary for CBC Ideas took so much time. It was amazingly fun, but it's a lot of work. Uh Um, And often it's hard to do that work if you're at a research institution because the work isn't being rewarded Uh and it's time you're losing from doing research that would be rewarded, like writing your monograph or whatever. Uh And at a teaching institution, I also find it hard because there's limited opportunities to have the time to do the work. Uh So the second season of Gender, Sex, and Tech is going to be considerably shorter than the first season was because I don't have a leave for the second season. Yeah. Um, and I think that every institution it's, it's hard, it's hard to find support to do the work. Uh Um, and the work, it takes a lot of work. (laughs) So yeah, that's not a great answer, but yeah. No, 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 it's true. Right. Cause I I do think one thing, particularly about like podcasts, but I I think probably true for a broad range of sort of, of formats for, uh, public scholarship is that it's more DIY, right? So like, yeah. Um, there is infrastructure behind, uh, right? The this kind of the standard ways of engaging in academic uh, scholarship, yeah. uh, right? And like academic publishing, right? There, there's an infrastructure there that y- you might have to produce some things. You might have to like do a little bit of uh, 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 peer reviewing, and depending on who you are, you might end up having some editorial some editorial responsibilities but for the most part right if you're just wanting to disseminate something you you can just 
right, kind of write it, edit it, and then sort of send it, get review, respond to reviewers, and then voila, you're done. Yeah. Um, you don't actually have to create it from the ground up the way you do often with um, things that are related to like uh, public scholarship. Yeah. yeah. And there are some, there's some movement in place to try and get this more recognized because for a lot of us, it's work we do off the side of our desks that's not necessarily supported uh-huh. um, in terms of having funding or release time or what have you. Uh-huh. So there are, um, in Canada, we have the Amplify Podcast Network, which is a startup um, led by Hannah McGregor at SFU in partnership uh-huh. with Wilfrid Laurier University Press. Uh-huh. And they're trying to find ways to have podcasting scholarly podcasts kind of be recognized so that people can use them on their CVs uh-huh. when they're applying for jobs or when they're going for tenure. Uh-huh. Um, they're doing peer review of, of, of podcasts, but it's a very huh. collaborative peer review process. It's a different process than the kind of process because obviously it, it can't be, yeah, it can't be blind. a double blind peer <laughs> review. <laughs> <laughs> what? Well, yeah. It, it could be a right? single blind. You're right. You could not know who the reviewers are, but it'd be hard for them yeah, not to know yeah. who you are. Yeah going to be hard for that to work yeah um so it's a new peer review system but they're building all of this from the ground up and i think there are some other movements the humanities podcast network is talking about doing things like having awards Uh to recognize junior podcasters and mentorship opportunities and stuff so that people can use this stuff Uh um their CVs and on their tenure portfolios and things like that so that it can get some recognition because at the moment it is all kind of lumped into service work. Uh And I mean, it's, I I went to this session once when I just started out podcasting, I went to a session at the humanities podcast network conference and it was called how and whether to sustain your podcast. (laughs) And it was about like the amount of work that goes into this and setting real goals figuring out how long it's going to take to take to get an episode out and like what can you do that won't require burnout (laughs) and and i think a lot of people are kind of struggling because they think what like i think what i'm doing is meaningful and important and it's meaningful to me Uh but it's also it's hard to sustain this kind of work Uh um and so there is there there are institutions out there trying to find a way to have our recognition go beyond just kind of the journal and the monograph and to recognize these kind of public scholarships, because I think it is important, whether it's an Mm op-ed or a video documentary or radio documentary podcast, whatever it is, it's work Uh and should be something that you, that you can use, Uh you know? No, I I agree. I I do think, um, well, it's interesting, right? Like if you're looking at just sort of overall broad impact, right? If you're thinking about engagement as a impact in terms of engagement, um, public philosophy will always, or public scholarship in general, will always beat academic publishing in terms of engagement, right? So, totally, right? Like I, I, I don't know. I harp on this a lot with random folks and on social media, but <clears throat> right, my my lowest downloaded uh, podcast episode has more downloads and like interaction than most of my my articles. Yes. <laughs> I'm excited whenever one of my academic articles gets cited. I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It got cited twice. I'm a rock star. Yeah. No. Th- yeah. I mean, particularly, particularly in the humanities, right? Like anytime someone cites yeah. me, I'm just like, wow, someone actually read that. <laughs> I know. Right. <laughs> or like when I see the download numbers go up, like, yes. <laughs> so download, I don't know if they read it, but they at least downloaded it. So they might read it. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting, right? That, uh, yeah, that uh, the, that uh, public scholarship isn't better appreciated because I really do think, because um, I mean, there's a lot of conversations in higher ed right now about how do we demonstrate our value to uh, a broader public that does not see the value in higher education and right yeah. thus does not support higher education. And I think one real easy way to do that is to have more public scholarship, have folks actually yeah. be able to see what we're up to and to directly get something from what we're up to. Mm -hmm. yeah. And be able to engage in it. Don't put it all behind paywalls. And yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. I, uh, it sounded like you were, about, you were going to say more, but then I said, yeah. And then you just went, yeah. Oh, just that, you know, I don't want to say that all academic journals should disappear. And no. I think having places for academics to talk to each other and use all their jargon uh -huh. is important. But I think we've overemphasized its importance, perhaps. Yeah. Well, and maybe not even overemphasized it. We just down, we just inappropriately downplayed all other forms of publication. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably a better way of putting it. Yeah. Because, I mean, I, I think in, in certain that like the peer re review process and like that requirement to be very, very kind of precise and thoughtful and careful uh, is good, right? Like, I don't think you're ever going to get like, I don't think you ever podcast your way to a cure for like, you know, uh, yeah. some sort of cancer, right? That That's probably going well, to be accountable to your, your peers, to the other intellects working in your discipline, I think is important. So yes. I'm not necessarily saying abolish the whole thing no. we may need to rethink it yes we need to make room for other sorts of scholarship yeah yeah <laughs> yes right and room that uh, i think currently doesn't exist well for most folks that are in <laughs> that are engaged in professional scholarship mm -hmm. at this point of our conversation the topic shifts substantially from podcasting and public scholarship to the content of jill's work the relationship between gender and technology so it seems like this might be a good place to end this episode to briefly summarize, in this episode, we learned about how Jill chooses guests for her podcast, how talking with young folks makes it obvious that our society has gotten better in relation to equity, how Jill's gone about integrating public scholarship into her career, and the importance of public-facing intellectual discourse. In the next episode, we'll learn more about what Jill thinks about how gender and tech intersect. Thank you for listening to Just Sustainability. If you've enjoyed what you heard, Please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review. Just Sustainability is recorded with the support of the Institute in the Environment at the University of Minnesota. In particular, I want to thank Peter Levin and Beth Mercer-Taylor for all their help with this show. All the music on Just Sustainability is composed and recorded by Clifton Nesseth, and all the artwork was created by Kristen Nesseth. Thank you again for listening.